Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So question, uh, really, one question that we're going to be thinking about today um, is this. It's are you for or against Jesus? Are you for or against Jesus? And you might think, well, that's a question. It sounds like it's kind of trying to put me on the spot. And it is. Um, but maybe you, you don't like that because many people today want to kind of stay in, um, in neutral territory with Jesus, kind of sitting on the fence. So lots of people would say, um, I'm kind of, I'm not for him, but I'm not against him either. I'm just kind of, just kind of neutral. Um, maybe they're impressed by him and, and, and like to think about his teachings or, or like his lifestyle. Or maybe the church seems like a good place and they like the Christian friends that they have. But they're kind of not that bothered, really, about Jesus. And they don't want to get too fanatical or, or too into him or, or whatever else. And even Christians, I guess, those of us who are Christians, who would say, yeah, well, we're for Jesus in answer to that question. Well, it's true, isn't it, that we can basically live our lives as if we are on the fence, ignoring him in much of our lives. 
Mark is showing us who Jesus is one story at a time through his gospel. And we are put on the spot and we have a decision to make. Are we for or are we against Jesus? Because being interested in or open to or or whatever else just doesn't quite cut it when it comes to Jesus. You see, he's always been able to, to draw a crowd. He's always had lots of people who are interested enough in him the kind of people who would follow him on Twitter or watch his YouTube channel or whatever, kind of, that kind of distance, kind of interest and intrigue. And we see that as at the beginning of our reading here. So if you look down at verse 7, Jesus is here, and it's kind of a bit of a recap of stuff we've seen before, and he's trying to escape to the lake with some friends for just a bit of time out, a bit of rest from his busy schedule. But the large crowds are following him. Some people think maybe even kind of in their tens of thousands of people following him and pressing in. And now we read, it's not just the people from around where he's been in Galilee and, and that area and region. These people have come from all over the place, up to 120 miles away. Clearly the news about him spread and he's kind of created a stir and so people are coming to check it out. And so we have this scene, it's kind of this frantic and frenetic scene where he's by the, by the lake with his friends and the crowds are literally kind of swarming in, kind of penning him in at the lake. The, the disease, the rushing forward to try and touch him and be healed. So he's got his kind of getaway boat ready to like escape if he needs to as he kind of literally gets pushed into the, into the water when it becomes too dangerous. You see, Jesus draws a crowd, but crowds and popularity are not what he is after and not what he is about. And, and we see that as Jesus kind of responds and we see these crowd, uh, this crowd kind of fall into two camps. Jesus makes an invitation to us, but he also warns us. He's trying to get us off that fence. Are you for or against Jesus? Well, firstly, his invitation is this. Are you for Jesus? Verses 13 through 19. We've got this kind of key moment in in the big Bible story here, really, that, that Mark is telling us about. He's already told us this story of Jesus is a, a new beginning in the Jewish story. God's kingdom is finally here. Jesus is creating this new people of God. And so um, we've seen it earlier in in, in Mark's story, but here again we've got this story of the Exodus being echoed. In in the Exodus story, uh, which was kind of really definitive for Israel, the, the mountain was the place where Moses went after they'd come out of Egypt to receive the law from God, kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments. And, and, and that law was teaching God's people, who then were in these 12 tribes, teaching them what it meant to be God's people, how to live knowing God, how God was to live amongst them and be with them. Well, here Mark tells us Jesus climbs up a mountain, and Jesus calls people up to him. He's calling the new people of God to him, 12 of them, representing his kingdom. And he invites them to be with them. And and he starts to teach them and tell them what it looks like to live in his kingdom. What it looks like to know God. So Jesus is starting this new people of God. Amazing reality. We get to the end and and when we prayed this morning together before um, some, some of you arrived, we were praying about this. Get to verses 34 and 35. And Jesus says, those who know him, those who do his will, those in his kingdom, well, they're his family, they're his mother, his brothers, his sisters. 
and his family. Jesus isn't just forming a new people of God. Jesus is forming a new family of God. And he's inviting people to come and join him. And we see as Jesus invites people into this family of God that he is forming, we, we, we see what it looks like to be for Jesus. We see what it looks like. We say, yes, I want that invitation. I'm going to respond. We see what it looks like. These three things. He calls us to come. He wants us to be with him. And he sends us out on his mission. And this is what the Christian life looks like. Firstly, in verse 13, we see that he calls us to come. It says he calls those to him that he wanted, and they came to him. You see, becoming a Christian is not a lifestyle choice or something new to try on or a new hobby. It's nothing less than responding to a call from one who is greater than you. It's kind of RSVPing to the invite that you receive that has first come to you. Nobody calls out to Jesus unless he has first called them. And we see here that those he calls are this kind of motley crew of unlikely lads. They're kind of pulled from all over the place. And as we've seen in previous weeks, aren't that impressive? Mark tells us here, even includes one who will betray him. Jesus continues to call today the unlikely to him. He continues to invite them to join his family. That's what it means to be called by Jesus. But also, and I think this is absolutely incredible, and secondly, Look at verse 14. It says, He appointed twelve that you might expect all sorts of things, but I don't think you might expect this, that they might be with him. That they might be with him. That's what he calls them to do. He says, come and be with me. Jesus is not there for the crowds. He's there for so much more. He's to invite people to come be with me. Come sit with me, come learn from me, come be my friend, my brother, my sister. We ought not forget this. Discipleship, being a Christian, is first and foremost a relationship before it's a task or something we do. It's about who we know and not what we know. And the revolutionary thing about Jesus, he doesn't just call us to worship him, he doesn't just call us to follow him, but he calls us to come and be his friends, to come and be with him. Jesus invites us into. I wonder what your friendship with Jesus looks like. Is it the kind of friendship where you just check in at church every few weeks, but between that you kind of don't really think about him or, 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 or anything? Or the kind of friendship where you turn to him for bail you out when you're in a fix, so when it goes wrong you will turn to him, you can be sure, but the rest of the time, well, he's not a friend that you need. Or maybe he's the kind of friend that you think you've got to impress and win his approval, so you always looking to kind of, I don't know, win, win his favour. Well, listen, that's not the kind of friendship that he invites you to. It's not the kind of friendship that he offers. The kind of friendship he gives to us. It's one where we can just be with him. We can enjoy him. We can know him and him us. A gift to be received. But thirdly and finally, what it looks like to be for Jesus is also to be sent. To be sent out by him on his behalf. We see that here in verses 14 and 15. Actually, we see that these 12 uh, men that he draws together, the footnote in 14 tells us he calls them apostles. And, and that literally means sent ones. 
those that he is sending out in his name. And actually, if you think through what we've seen so far in Mark, so far these followers of Jesus who have kind of been following him around, well, they've been pretty passive. They've kind of been following Jesus, watching what's going on, seeing things, but all the action really is is around Jesus and what he's doing. But as we go through the story, and Mark kind of continues to unfold the story, we'll see that Jesus is getting his followers to do the stuff that he's doing as well. He invites them in, and, and he sends them out to do the same kinds of things. He sends them out and gives them authority, so they go and preach. They go and cast out demons. They go and give healing in his name. And, and to do this, they've given up the other occupations of their life. We, we saw the start for some of these guys. They had a fishing business, or they were tax collecting and, and doing these other things. And, and, and they leave that stuff. And they come and they are sent and commissioned by Jesus with a new mission for their life. You know, being for Jesus takes over your life mission. It takes over. The mission of Jesus becomes a very central purpose in your life. question is, are we letting it? Are we letting him? Are we letting his mission take over on our life? Listen, I'm not saying that everyone has to kind of quit their work and start working for the church or something like that. We wouldn't be able to pay. You can hardly pay me, so we're not going to pay anyone else. Um, um, but the mission of your life, as you go about your life, what you're about, what drives you, the things that you care about, the things that you're doing, is that Jesus is calling the shots. That's the invitation. Are you for Jesus? But secondly, the second half of this question, are we for or against Jesus? There's the warning. Are you against Jesus? And it's surprising who turns out being against Jesus. Before you answer that with a definite no, just hear me out for a few moments. We've got these two different groups of people that Mark tells us about in this second half who come with these accusations against Jesus. And he puts these kind of two groups together, together like a kind of a bit of a story sandwich. It's kind of all mixed in together a bit. But what he's doing is he's showing us how similar these two groups are in opposing Jesus. And he's, he's giving us the kind of this serious warning uh, to, to both of them in the way that Jesus responds, really raising the stakes on, on how we answer this question. So, so the first group is uh, Jesus' family. You see that kind of in verses 20 and 21. Again, the crowds are around Jesus, and so this time he doesn't even have enough spare time or, or space to get some lunch. And so the family kind of completely kick off about this, saying, Jesus, you are crazy. You're, you're off your head. You've gone mad. You kind of think skipping lunch isn't the biggest news yet in Mark's gospel. There's some other stuff which you would have thought might kind of drawn them out. But it's probably a case of, you know, the piece of straw that broke the camel's back. And they're not sure that all of this attention is good for their big brother, and, and, and they're concerned for his health and his well-being, and, and they think they know what is better for him. And they think he's just losing the plot. And so Mark tells us that his family come to take control of him. Literally, they come to restrain him. We, we have to jump down to verse 31 when they arrive at the house, looking to take charge, calling him to them, trying to kind of get him away from his mission and on the mission that they think he should have. 
And Mark cleverly kind of shows us with his storytelling what's going on. His mother and his brothers are outside the house calling Jesus to them, trying to impose their will on him, showing that they're against his mission. And those who are on the inside, you normally expect the family to be inside a house, wouldn't you? But the family on the outside, those who are on the inside, the ones who are with Jesus, the ones who are listening to him, listening to him teach them, spending time with him, learning to do God's will. Those who Jesus says are his mother, his brothers and sisters. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? If you imagine you were kind of Jesus' sibling or, or his mum, his mum particularly, it's kind of shocking, isn't it? But let's be clear, Jesus is not rejecting his family outright. He is not saying he does not care for them. Loads of other examples in the Gospels, and particularly later on where he shows great love and concern and respect for his mum. When he's dying on the cross, he's making sure that someone's going to look after her. His brother James becomes one of the main leaders in the church later on. So he's not going to totally reject his family. And yet he is saying that they do not get to claim any special privileges over him. They do not get to divert him from his mission. And they do not get to oppose his kingdom. And if they do, then they will fall foul of him. So I wonder if we're trying to control Jesus in some way. I wonder if there's parts of our lives where we think we know better than him. You know, those times when Jesus kind of gets a bit socially awkward for us. It's a bit difficult to kind of admit that, yeah, we believe in Jesus, we believe the stuff he said, yeah, we want to follow him or, or whatever else. Or his mission starts to look a bit costly for our lives and our lifestyle and what we hoped our life might look like. Or maybe just his ways seem so out of sync with ours. Things that we would want, we would desire. It raises the stakes, doesn't it? Are we for him or are we against him? You know, we may think that we are all good with Jesus. And yet the warning is that if we try to impose our agenda on him, if we won't let him lead us, we won't follow his mission. And we could be shocked find ourselves on the outside like his family did. The good news is they didn't stay there. We do need to be warned by that. The second group of people this warning comes to are the religious. The religious. And we see that in the middle here in verses 22 to 30. And here's the accusation from these religious Fellas, in actual fact, these are like the, the top dogs. We read they're the teachers of, law, of the law from Jerusalem. They've heard about this kind of commotion in Galilee and they've come to check out what's going on and, and see what's happening with this Jesus. It's a bit like if you're in the workplace and, um, and you know, the senior management from head office are visiting your, your, your workplace. And everyone is on their best behavior, aren't they? And wondering what they're going to the senior management are going to say about this colleague that's been causing a bit of problems or, or creating a stir or whatever. Well, as, as these religious top, top dogs come, they uh, come and they basically go down uh, the, the liar route with Jesus. So they, they realize that they can't deny his supernatural power. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that they can't deny the things that he's been doing. The easiest thing for his opponents to, to kind of shut this whole thing down and, and quell the crowds and just get back to business as usual. The easiest thing would be to show that he's not doing these amazing things. 
you can't cast out demons, you can't heal the sick, it's just a hoax or a trick or whatever, and somehow we can show you that because we know, you know, find out his magic trick, end off. They don't even try to do that. They know these things are happening. They know everyone's amazed and impressed. There's so much going on, so many eyewitnesses, all sorts of things. They know it's real. But what they do is they say, well, where is your power coming from? Yes, you have power, but where is it from? You know it's not from God. You don't keep the religious rules and the law. Of course you can't be from God. It must be from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Satan himself. Jesus, you're deceiving people. You are lying. You're acting by the power of Satan. Jesus responds to them, verse 23 and following. He basically says, I mean, it's relatively simple. He's like, if I'm doing this by Satan's power, it's like I'm scoring an own goal. And no team goes out to score an own goal, do they? Why would Satan attack his own? A divided kingdom, a divided home is not strong. It does not stand. We know it ourselves, don't we? Infighting in a family just tears a family apart. This isn't by the power of Satan. This isn't by impure spirits. This is by the Spirit of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit that I do these things. Jesus says, in fact, one stronger than Satan is here. I am here and I am stronger than Satan. And and he has tied up Satan and is now plundering his house and kind of stealing back from Satan what he has been ruining and destroying. Jesus is acting by the power of the Spirit of God, not by the power of Satan. And yet, as as he continues in his response, he kind of raises the stakes again. And he warns them in verse 28 about this unforgivable sin. He says, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And we find that scary to read, don't we? And people have sometimes asked me, they've said, have I committed the unforgivable sin? What have I had without realizing it? How would I know if I have? What is this thing? I'm scared by it. Well, listen, the good news is, if you're asking that kind of question, then it pretty much nails on that you haven't committed it. Or at least not yet. Because this sin that is not forgiven, we've got to understand it from the conversation that's going on. It's not someone who like swears by using Jesus' name or, or anything like that. But no, it's this. It's the deliberate and ongoing rejection of the Holy Spirit. And particularly the work of the Holy Spirit to show us who Jesus is. So the Spirit is here showing people who Jesus is, that this is God working. And they're saying, no, it's Satan working. And they're rejecting him. And they're pushing back against him. And they are against Jesus, and they are against the Spirit. So the unforgivable sin is refusing to believe in Jesus as God. It is seeing God's grace in action. It is seeing Jesus' Holy Spirit-powered life and ministry, and it's rejecting it. Saying, no, won't believe it, don't want to believe it. So it's a sin that is committed with knowledge and with exposure to Jesus and turning away from and ignoring what we see in some sense we know to be true. It's actually your Bible scholars and your church leaders who reject Jesus as God. 
there are many of them. It's your church attenders who know Jesus is special and yet refuse, yet refuse to bow the knee to him. It is those who grow up in church and are kind of around Christianity but never for themselves trust in Jesus. They hear and see so much about him. They see what the Spirit says about him and yet reject him. those who have heard and seen and experienced the reality of who Jesus is and yet have never turned to him themselves to receive life. Deliberately rejecting the one who gives forgiveness does put you in a place of unforgiveness. What this is saying to us. Listen, if you find yourself near that place today and you in your heart will know that if you do and whether you do, and be warned away from this sin and acknowledge Jesus as God. Acknowledge his claims as to who he is and what he can do. And respond to his invite to be with him. The invite is here for you this morning. It's offered to you freely. Don't resist it any longer. Because the reassuring thing that's kind of snuck in with this unforgivable sin is that everything else can be forgiven. It's only your determined, ongoing rejection of him that cannot be, but everything else, whatever you have done, can be forgiven by him. Don't hold yourself back. Come to him. You know what? Some of these religious leaders, I think, did respond and did come to him later. I don't know if they were in this crowd, but I know some of the religious leaders did. Certainly, his family later did respond to him. Come and receive his forgiveness every one of us here today, there is hope, there is an invitation, there is an opportunity. It also, though, this also reminds us that the biggest problem for those around us, if we've received this for ourselves, those in our family or our workplace, our neighbours, our friends, the biggest problem isn't their lifestyle, it isn't their broken relationships, it isn't their crime, their addictions, their sexual ethics, their drug use, whatever else, their racism, the biggest problem is their rejection of Jesus as God. It's their saying no to the invite that he holds to them. Because of who he is. And we ought to remember that for those people that we're amongst that we love and care for. Not get all kind of giving them a hard time for various things in their lifestyle, but just give them Jesus. Because that's who they need. He's what they need. Listen, this is why the stakes are so high of how we answer this question of, 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 of whether we're for or against Jesus and what we do with him. He offers an invite to us to be part of his family, to be one of his people, but that invite comes with a, a warning too. The consequences of how we answer that are eternal. And so to help us each consider our response to that question and how that question impacts our lives. I'm just going to finish with this quote. Some of you will be very familiar with it. But it helps us kind of helpfully summarizes the choice that we have when it comes to Jesus. It's from uh, C.S. Lewis, and it is quite a long one. I'll try and read it uh, slowly. Let's finish with this quote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man, 
said that all the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a, a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'll be the devil of hell. Random, I know. Or else he'll be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's pray. Jesus, you came and lived your life on earth, and as you did, you came. Your life was a big invite to us, a big welcome home, sign from God. For us to come be part of your family, to be with you, to know you, called by you and then sent by you. Thank you for that invite, and thank you that Mark has recorded it for us. yet, Lord, I know that there may be some of us here who are responding to that invite. But for all of us, there's areas and parts of our lives where that is a distant reality and where being with you and knowing you is not a present experience for us. Maybe it used to be in the past, but it's not now. Or actually, if we're honest about the mission of our life, it's nothing to do with you, really. Just kind of attack on an insurance policy. Lord, in your words here are a warning for us that we ought not find ourselves against you. We cannot sit on the fence, we cannot hedge our bets. If you bring conviction in our hearts where we need it, change in our lives where we need it, that we might be people who are for you and radically for you in every way. Sold out for your kingdom, because you're the king who saved us. Lord, we pray that, because it would bring you much glory, and your fame will spread by it. Amen. Musicians are going to come, we'll stand and we'll sing together.